Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Good evening. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Joe and I'm one of the leaders here and we're really glad that you're here. Every week we, we get together and about this time we open up our Bibles and we study them together. And This week we'll be continuing our study in the book of Genesis. So if you brought a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll also put the words up on the screen or you can look underneath the seat around you and find a hardback Bible. If you flip just a few pages in the beginning, you'll find... Genesis there, and chapter 23 comes right after chapter 22 and before chapter 24, so it's pretty easy to find in there. But, but before we begin, I, I want to share something a little bit, because um, since I, I get the opportunity to teach from the Bible on occasion, um, people somehow get the idea that I, that I might have a thing or two to say about life, or, or that I actually know something about the Bible just because I have the opportunity to do this. And, and those people who, who have gotten to know me well know that that's actually the furthest thing from the truth, that, that I actually have very little to say about, about life or, or much of anything. And I would suspect that, that most people who, who teach the Bible or, or preach the gospel would, would say a similar thing, that, that the words that, that we have hold little value unless God actually comes and helps us, unless God actually comes and is speaking to the people who are listening. And, and because of that, I, I can find no way to stand up here. I can, I can find no way to reconcile uh, some of my inadequacies and insecurities were it not for some of the things I know about God from what I read in the Bible. One of the things that I, I've read about God in the Bible tells me that he instructs sinners in the way they should go, that he teaches people how they should live. And, and so I flipped that a little bit and applied it to, to me and, and said, I know that he instructs sinners in the way they should preach, in the way they should teach the Bible. And because God instructs us, I can feel confident that he'll be instructing us tonight in spite of my inadequacies and in spite of my inability to actually have something to share, I trust and believe that God can speak to us if we would be willing to listen. And I want to encourage all of us in the room who, who have questions about what we should do in life and wonder. We can, we can feel confident and assured that God instructs us in the way we should go. He instructs us in the way that we should live. He instructs us in the things that we should do. And if you're like me, you'll find that the primary way you find that instruction is in the pages of the Bible. 
It's in the Bible that we learn about who Jesus is. And when we know who Jesus is, we can then follow him. And in following him, we can hear him instructing us in the way that we should live and how we should conduct ourselves in the world according to how he's created us. This is why we study the Bible here at Renaissance, because we want to know what God believes, what God knows, what God has designed as the best for our lives. And because he has designed that, and we know we can find that in the pages of the Bible, that's where we turn to. That's why we study the Bible today. That's why we're going to open up the Bible to Genesis chapter 23. And there are a couple ways that we can study the Bible, and there are a couple ways that we do study the Bible here at Renaissance. And one of them is by by taking a really close look at what we're reading. And maybe we're going to focus on a word or two, or a phrase or two, or a sentence or two, and, and kind of get down in the weeds of the passage that we're reading. And another way to study the Bible is is taking the passage that we're reading in the greater context of the rest of the Bible. How how does this look in the later books? of the scriptures. It's almost like we're viewing it from 30,000 feet. And because we're so high above, to continue with that analogy, we can see more of the story that's going on. Because the Bible is really a collage of stories that have been woven together by this one thread, Jesus. And Jesus is holding all of these stories together. And he's, he's the theme and the point of all of the stories in the Bible. And so, so we can find him as we study and as we read. And so before we jump in tonight, I want us to pray together and and ask that God would help us find Jesus, that he would help us learn about Jesus tonight from a passage that does not mention his name. So would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the Bible. I thank you that we have the gift of this book that teaches us about who you are. It teaches us about how you would instruct us in the way that we should live. And so I pray that as we learn more about Jesus tonight, that you would help us to understand your great love for us, your great kindness towards us, and your great care for us in giving us your son Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see him for who he is, and in so doing, follow him wholeheartedly. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Before we begin to study Genesis chapter 23 here, I, I, I want to make mention real quick that this passage is, is kind of an interesting passage in that it doesn't even mention God. In fact, the only time the word God is used is as a nickname for Abraham. The, the people who live in this land call him the prince of God. Otherwise, God is not even mentioned in this passage. In fact, it reads more like a real estate transaction than an actual passage in the Bible. There's even a moment where there's a legal description of land in there like we would find on one of our our deeds at the county recorder's office. And so you might wonder, why are we studying this passage of the Bible tonight? And if you've been following along this entire Genesis series, what you've noticed if you've been reading along in the Bible is that there were a few passages in Genesis that we did not cover. There were a few chapters that we seemingly skipped over, and I'll tell you that we did it on purpose. We, we actually have an agenda in doing this. And, and, and that agenda is that we want to be able to, to teach the Bible in such a way that the passages we talk about help us to best understand who Jesus is. 
And so we didn't skim over or purposely throw those other passages aside because they were invaluable or, or because we were afraid to approach them. We did so because we want to find the way that we can, we can best talk about Jesus from the book of Genesis. So that might lead you to question, why chapter 23? I'm glad you asked. We're talking about Genesis chapter 23 because I believe God wants to grab our attention here. And it shows us that in verse 1. It says, Sarah lived 127 years. This Sarah is the wife of this man, Abraham. And if you're unfamiliar with Abraham and Sarah, I would encourage you to go catch up on the podcast at our website. But, but to, to give you the long and the short of it real quick, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are very old He's 100, she's 90, and God has promised to them many years before that they would have a son, and they eventually do, age 100 and at age 90. They have a son named Isaac, and they live their lives rejoicing that they were able to have this child that God miraculously provided for them, but as everyone does, they eventually died, and Sarah lived to be 127 years old. The fact that, that this is recorded in the Bible should grab our attention and cause us to stop and wonder, what is God trying to speak to us here? Because what, what happens when the Bible's written down, it's not just an author with a pen and paper writing their own thoughts on the page. It's actually God coming along and, and instructing them in the things that they should write down speaking to them, encouraging them with the words that they should say, inspiring them is the language that we like to use in the things that they should write down. So, so when the author of Genesis wrote down that Sarah lived to be 127 years old, he was doing so because God was encouraging him to do it and he wanted to catch our attention. And the thing that should catch our attention is not that she lived to be 127 years old though that's pretty miraculous in itself. The thing that should catch our attention is that her lifespan was even recorded at all. So this is the only account in the Bible of a woman's lifespan being recorded. It's the only time we, we learn how long a woman actually lived before she died. And in fact, this is common in ancient texts that the lifespan of women were not recorded because they were often viewed as second-class citizens and sometimes even as property. And so they weren't valued as much as men were. But here's God instructing the author of Genesis to dignify a woman's life and put her lifespan in its pages. The next time someone would say to you that the Bible is irrelevant and antiquated and cannot speak to the issues of our day, you show them this revolutionary event that took place when hundreds, thousands years ago, God dignified the life of a woman in spite of what the rest of culture around them would say. This was revolutionary. You might even say it's progressive, what God is doing here. And so he's trying to grab our attention and cause us to see what he's saying here in this passage. Verse 2, it says, Sarah died, and Abraham went in to mourn for her, and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead wife and said to the Hittites, these are the people who lived in that part of the land, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. They, they say, Abraham, you're a great guy. Everybody likes you around here. So instead of you buying a piece of land from us, 
so you can bury your wife in. We want to give it to you. We want to gift you this piece of land because we have so much respect for who you are. And Abraham argues with him. He goes on to say that I want to pay the full price of the land. I want to pay whatever it costs. I want to purchase it because he understands that if he doesn't purchase the land with his own money, there won't be a transaction that takes place that that records the deed in his name, if you will. He knows that, that if they just give him the land, if he doesn't buy it, what will actually be happening is that he's just laying his wife in a borrowed grave. It doesn't actually belong to him. He wants to take ownership of that plot of land because it's very important to him. We, we go on to learn that he, he begins to discuss this with the owner of that piece of land, a man named Ephron. And Ephron says in verse 11, listen, Abraham, I want to give you this field. There's a cave in the field and I want to give you the cave that's in it too. I'm going to do this in the sight of all the people. It's going to be recorded in public so no one can dispute it later. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people, if you will, please listen to me. I want to give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I can bury my dead there. I want to pay the full price of the field. And Ephron goes on to say, listen, Abraham, this land is worth 400 shekels of silver. Now, now, since we don't use the shekel system anymore, <laughs> we wouldn't readily understand how valuable that was, but, but, but 400 shekels of silver would have been the equivalent of 40 years worth of wages for a common laborer. So in 40 years, a common laborer cannot buy this piece of land. And if Ephron makes it an exorbitant amount to tell Abraham, there's no way you're going to be able to purchase this. Let me just give it to you. And what does Abraham do? Verse 16, he weighs out for Ephron the silver that he'd named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So lay aside the fact that Abraham's a baller apparently and, <laughs> and has no qualms about dropping 40s worth of wages for a common laborer on a burial plot and, and, and consider how valuable this piece of land was to him, that he would pay full price, full asking price. He's a realtor's dream client. Full asking price for this piece of land, he says. Not even willing to negotiate, not even talking down some of the features of the land. He says, whatever you want for it, I'm going to give it to you because it's that valuable to me. Now, now that might seem crazy to us because it's just burial plot thousands of miles away in another part of the world. But it's not so crazy when we consider the things that we think are valuable that we'd be willing to spend whatever on them so that we could keep them or obtain them. There are things that we're willing to spend whatever time, energy, money that it takes to have or maintain. I'll give you an example. Recently, I began to try and eat healthier. And what I've learned when trying to eat healthier is that it's expensive to eat healthier. You know what's not expensive? McDonald's. Taco Bell isn't expensive. But spinach leaves, for some reason, are expensive. And, and how they're more expensive than Reese's peanut butter cups, I don't understand. Because supply and demand should come into effect. Nobody's buying spinach. Everybody wants a Reese's peanut butter cup. And it's easier to get one of those than it is to get the spinach, which is so much better for me. But, but because I've been trying 
to eat healthier. I've been willing to spend a little bit more money to, to open my pocketbook a little bit wider and get what I need to help me maintain this new lifestyle change. But in all of this, I still have a bit of a sweet tooth. And, and so, so what I've been trying to do is, is to find some alternatives to Reese's peanut butter cups to satisfy my sweet tooth. I've been taking pecans and throwing them in a bowl and putting honey on them. Mm. And, and, and that's good enough for a little bit. That'll keep me satisfied for 10, 15 minutes. And, and eventually I've gotten tired of doing that because that's a lot of work. Get the pecans, throw them in a bowl, find some honey, pour it on there. Got to wash the bowl later. And then I discovered that Kroger sells this thing called honey vanilla bourbon pecans. They're as good as they sound. And when I started buying them, they were $6 for a little canister. Unbelievable, $6. And I'm like, this is just going to be a treat for me every once in a while. And I'll just, have, I'll just have the recommended serving amount, a fourth of a cup, which is like three pecans. I don't understand how that works. But I'm only going to buy this every now and then. So the $6 that it costs for this canister, totally worth it. I've gotten to the point now where the people in the self-checkout at Kroger know be my name and they realize, oh, you're back again today for your pecans, Joe, because they're so good. And, and somewhere along the line, the law of supply and demand has kicked into effect because they've hiked the price of these pecans to $8.49. <laughs> I was so upset when I saw that happen, but there was never a question in my mind, should I not buy them? Because they mean so much to me right now. And so I go in every other day and drop $8.50 on this thing of pecans because it means so much more to me than if I were to try and satisfy my sweet tooth with a Reese's peanut butter cup. Because let me tell you, one is too many, but 10 is not enough. So it's better for me to spend the extra money on these pecans and do it. The things that are valuable to us and worth a lot to us, we don't bat an eye at spending whatever it takes to get them, do we? We don't, we don't think twice about putting our resources into it. Jesus knows that people are like this. In fact, when he's with his closest friends, his students, one day he, he tells them a parable, a story, and he says that the kingdom of heaven is, is a lot like a man who, who was a jeweler. And he found a pearl that was more valuable than any other pearl he'd ever seen. And because he wanted to buy this most valuable pearl he'd ever seen, he took everything he had and he sold it. He gave it all up so he could go out and buy this most valuable pearl he'd ever seen. He's saying there are, there are people who are willing to, to expend all they have for that which they believe is valuable. But the story he was telling them was not the story necessarily of a man that he'd met one time or, or someone that he'd heard of. What he's actually saying is the man in the story, the man who sold everything he had to go buy the most valuable pearl he'd ever seen is Jesus himself. He says, I want you to understand that, that I was willing to give up everything I had in heaven. I was willing to lay aside everything I owned in heaven and come to this earth and give it all up for you, the most valuable pearl I have ever seen. For me, the most valuable pearl he's ever seen. We have intrinsic value 
to God. And it's proven by how Jesus came to this earth and gave up everything for us. Many of us struggle with the idea that we actually have value. We actually have some kind of worth. And, and we struggle with it for different reasons. Some of us think we don't have value because once upon a time, someone told us we have no value. Some of us think we have no value because we tell ourselves all the time we don't have value and we're keenly aware of our weaknesses and we don't think we have anything to offer. Someone told us one time we have no value because they were incorrectly using the words of the Bible. But the value that we hold in God's eyes, is so evident by what he's done for us through his son, Jesus. He's given everything so that we now have to pay nothing. He gave his life. He gave it all. So we now owe him nothing. How often do we come to him how often do we know and, and hear him say, I've forgiven you completely. I've given you my salvation and there's nothing that you can do to earn it. But we want to be like Abraham and say, but here, Lord, let me, let me give you all of this stuff. Let me, let me make up for what I'm afraid you've missed somehow. Let, let me make up for the, for the areas that, that I'm falling apart and I feel like I have, to, I have to fix what you can't completely fix when he says it's all done. I've given it all for you. And the fact of the matter is that we could never pay that debt anyway. We owe him so much more than we could ever give back. And so he freely gives us all. He freely gives us eternal life knowing that we could give him nothing to begin with and so he pays it all for us. Just as Abraham is willing to, to weigh out the 400 shekels of silver without batting an eye, we so easily want to, want to weigh out what we need to pay God and ask him to come and be on our side, but he's already on our side. Because Jesus has come. We don't have to pay him a thing because Jesus has already paid for it all. And I know this, and I believe this, and I think I understand it. But, but there are times where I do feel like I, I, I am paying. There are times where I do feel like I have to pay for something. And, and what I mean by that is, is whenever I'm sinning, whenever I'm disobedient to God, I can tell you that I'm paying and I'm not paying because God is extracting something from me because I now owe him something in return since I've sinned. But I am paying in guilt. And I'm paying in shame. And, and I'm paying in feeling like I've run far away from him and he's not close to me anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm paying in the way that I now feel because I've turned away from God who never turns away from me. I feel like I pay if I, if I haven't been reading my Bible regularly to get to know God better. I feel like I'm, I'm paying if I'm not spending time to try to understand Jesus better. And I, and I pay in ways that, that looks like me becoming more irritable. Looks like me having a bad attitude in the day. It looks like me becoming short with the people around me because I haven't been willing to give him my time. And I would suspect that many of us in the room could share a similar story that, that 
when we disobey, we feel like we pay. And not because he's coming along and saying, you owe me something now, but because there are natural consequences to everything we do. There are, there are difficulties that occur through the choices that we make. There are times where, where those consequences come that, that we want to stop and get angry at God and say, why have you done this to me? And he says, you don't understand, you've done it to yourself. It would be as though I were to fall flat forward off this stage on purpose and I bloody my nose from impacting the floor. And I stand up, and I walk around to each one of you, and I whine. I've got a bloody nose. Why do I have a bloody nose? And you look me in the eye and lovingly say, you stupid, you fell flat first off the stage. You did this to yourself. And we can see the story throughout the Bible of Abraham's descendants growing into a nation. His son that he and his wife, Sarah, had, Isaac. He went on to have a son, Jacob, who went on to have 12 sons. These 12 sons grow into a great nation, just as was promised to Abraham. And they grow into this great nation, and they eventually come back to this land here where Abraham put his footprint there when he purchased that grave plot. They eventually come back to this land, and they find themselves in cycles where sometimes they're fully serving God, and other times they're drifting far away from him. And when they drift far away from him, there are natural consequences that occur. And there were times they would cry out to him and say, why have you done this to us? And he says, you don't understand. You've done it to yourselves through the choices that you made. See, he lays out for us the way we should live. He, he's told us what we should do. And, and he's made us a certain way. And, and because he's made us a certain way, there are, there's a certain way that we should live. And if we come out of that lane, it makes him angry, not because he's a stickler for rules, but because he knows if we're not operating in the way we were created, it damages us. Consequences come, and he hates that. He hates that that happens to us. And this is the cycle of the nation of Israel all throughout their history in the Old Testament, where for a time they would serve God and follow his ways, and after a while they would drift far away from him. And I bet we could all say that we experience similar cycles where we feel incredibly close to God, and after a while we feel like we're drifting far away from him, and then something will occur to catch our attention, and we'll run back to him and feel close to him again, and then before we know it, things are easy again, and it's easy to drift and find ourselves becoming lazy and indifferent until something catches our attention again, and we come back, and oftentimes what would catch the attention of the nation of Israel was a foreign army invading their land. And many times when these foreign armies invaded, they would kidnap many of the people and carry them to another place to live. And this was incredibly difficult for them, not just because of the practical issues that arise when you're wrenched from your homeland and taken somewhere else. That's bad enough. But what was really hard for them was that they believed that they were in that land because God had promised it to them. God spoke to Abraham years before Isaac was ever born and said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And knowing that, it makes perfect sense why it was valuable to Abraham to buy this plot of land. He says, if, 
if I buy this plot of land for my wife to be buried there, I know that my great-grandchildren will one day want to come back to this place to be buried here. It will bring my descendants back to this land. And so he puts his footprint down there and says, this one day, all of this land will be ours. We'll read on eventually in the book of Genesis about a man named Joseph who on his deathbed turns to those around him and says, when I die, take my bones and bury them in my great-grandmother's Sarah's grave. Bury me alongside her. Abraham knows that, that this land is going to become precious to his descendants. And at the point when they would be pulled and taken from it, what they would experience was a sense of God's promise not being fulfilled. And so now they're in a tension place where they wonder where God is. We thought that God had promised us this land, but now we're not living in it because of our consequences. And so they turned back to him and many of them would be returned back to the land eventually. And this is their history all throughout the Old Testament. And eventually we get to the time of Jesus's life where at this point, they're probably serving God more dutifully than they ever had before. They're, they're, they're probably, they're finding ways in which to keep from breaking God's rules. In fact, they're so afraid of breaking his rules and the consequences that would come that they develop many more rules on top of them so that you, you'd eventually have to break 12 rules before you get to God's rule. And so they're attempting to insulate themselves from these consequences that occur. But the the issue with this is that seemingly they should be possessing the land now because that's been their history. When we turn to God and start following what he wants, the, the consequences of our sin seem to fall away and everything seems to go well. And yet in Jesus's time, when it appeared that they were doing everything correctly, they're being ruled by the Roman Empire. They're still not seeing the fulfillment of God's promise. And so this tension Develops and, and, and how often we too look at God and we'll ask him, Lord, Lord, where are you? I thought I was doing the right thing. I, I thought I was following what you wanted for my life and yet this terrible thing has happened to me. Why are you absent from me here? I thought that I was doing what you'd asked me to do and now maybe I'm worse off than I was before I said yes to you. The issue in that is, is that God is always up to so much more than what we can see with our eyes. He's up to so much more than the circumstances around us. He cares about so much more than the land underneath us. And so by the time Jesus comes, there's a great fervor and anticipation amongst the people that God is going to send them someone who will rescue them from Roman rule. They called this person the Messiah the anointed one, the chosen one. And many teachers arose in that day who would teach new things and they'd be figures that people would gather around and people would question, is this the one? And they'd try to make them the king and they would try to say, is this the Messiah? Is this the chosen one? Is this the one that God has sent to rescue us? And they would all fail and then Jesus comes along and he begins to do many miracles and he begins to teach new things and people are gathered around him and they begin to question, maybe he's the one. And on, on some occasions, they attempted to make him the king because they believed that he was this chosen one God was sending to rescue them. And there's this great sense of anticipation and excitement amongst all the people that God is going to do this thing. He's going to culminate 
our story in this event. And I want us to grasp the sense of that anticipation that occurs. And some of you who have a bracket for March Madness are sensing anticipation for a payday. But I don't know a whole lot about sports in general, except for one. And I can tell you I'm sensing great anticipation because in two weeks, WrestleMania happens. (laughs) You see, in January, there's an event called the Royal Rumble. And at the Royal Rumble, whoever wins the Royal Rumble gets an opportunity to face the world champion at WrestleMania three months later. And they get an opportunity to be crowned at the top of the wrestling world ladder. And this period in between the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania is called the road to WrestleMania. And it's full of excitement and anticipation. You've probably seen some of them on the morning shows that you watch. Because everyone's talking about WrestleMania and what's going to happen that day. It's the culmination of a year's worth of storylines and character development. Where when they finally get to this day, someone's going to be crowned the champion. It'll be a great celebration. Many people will be excited. Some people will be be disappointed, and I know what you're thinking. Joe, (laughs) you know that wrestling is fake, right? (laughs) And to you, I would say, listen, you know This Is Us is fake, right? I know it's a story. I know it's been scripted by people sitting in back rooms. I know it's people putting a story together to build to something. I know that it's predetermined, but that still doesn't take away from the anticipation that occurs because there's something built within all of us that we desire to see a story unfold. The nation of Israel knew that there was a greater power writing their story. And they were anticipating that there would be the fulfillment of this thing they'd been waiting for, for years. And they knew that behind the scenes, someone was writing, someone was planning, someone was plotting what would happen. And they believed that when Jesus arrived, he would be the one. A few hundred years before Jesus' birth, a man named Zechariah prophesied or foretold that this king, the one that the nation needed to rescue them, would one day enter the city of Jerusalem with great pomp and circumstance, albeit riding upon a donkey, humbly. The Sunday before Jesus' death, we read a story in Matthew chapter 21 where, where he instructs some of his disciples to go and, and to find to find a donkey that's been tied and and to bring it to him. They put their coats on this donkey and he sat on it and got ready to enter into this town. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse four, the, the author in somewhat of a parenthetical statement tells us that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast, of burden. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat, he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. They're expecting this guy really is the king that God has promised who would come and rescue us from this invading nation. Verse nine, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us, save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save us. You're the only one who can save us. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And you can begin to hear the murmuring amongst the crowd. Maybe he's the chosen one. He's riding in on a donkey like the prophet said he would. Maybe he's the king. Maybe he's the one we've been waiting for. Fast forward five days when he's arrested and puts up no fight, is not willing to lead an army to attack the Roman authorities. He's brought before the crowds, and the governor asks them, what would you like me to do with this man? And many of the same people who on Sunday were shouting, you're the only one who can save us, on Friday shouted, you should crucify him. He is not the king we wanted. He's not the king we were looking for. We, we wanted a king to ride into town on a war horse, strong and brave, leading a train of ready soldiers to defeat our enemies. And this guy comes riding in on a donkey, like a humble servant. He's not the king we wanted. We wanted a warrior. This guy deserves death. And so they exchange the life of Jesus, who we now know is the savior of the world, in hopes that someone would come and rescue them and preserve their ownership of a land that was just full of dead people's bones underneath it. How often do we, do we look to God and and? and want him to be more than what we think he's being for us. We put expectations upon him that, that we think he should have worked out a certain situation in a different way. We, we think he should have caused someone else to behave differently. We think that he should pull us out of our mess every time we make one. We think that he should do, and you can fill a laundry list of things of what the expectations are we put upon God. And all this while, the people are crying out, save us, save us from the Romans. And Jesus comes along on this donkey and says, you don't understand. I would rather bury your, bear your griefs and carry your sorrows. I want to save you from your sins. This land means nothing compared to the eternal life I want to give to you. You want a king who's going to come and overthrow the enemy armies? I tell you, I'm a king who's come to carry you. And often we want him to show up in power and blazing glory. And we want everything to look wild and awesome and crazy. And so often he's working humbly and subtly in ways that we can't see. And we think it's about all of the circumstances around us. But so often he has a purpose that is so much greater than what our eyes can see. 
He just asks that we wait with him in faith, anticipating that he actually does know what he's doing. See, Jesus is the king that, that everybody wants. Most people just don't know that yet. He's, he's really the king that we all need. We, we don't need the king riding on the war horse. We need this humble servant who would come and give up everything to give us new life. He's the one we need. The band is going to return in a moment, and when they do, well, we'll have time to spend a few minutes singing and worshiping God. And during that time, I, I invite us all to consider in what ways have I shouted to Jesus, he should be crucified. I want to overthrow your kingdom because you're not who I expected you to be. You didn't come through for me the way that I wanted you to come through for me. You didn't do for me what I hoped you would do, and so now I'm mad at you for that. We can consider all the ways that we've looked at him and said those things to him and hear him patiently saying to us, I still want to rescue you from your sins. I still want to carry you. I still want to lead you and love you and help you because you're the most valuable pearl I've ever laid eyes on. You're the most valuable thing in the universe to me, he would say. I'm going to pray for us. And, and while I'm praying, I, I will ask that God will, will show us his love for us. And cause us to forget about the material things around us that, that may be falling apart. I'm going to ask that he would help us to not exchange those for the true life that he wants to give to us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm so thankful that you sent your son Jesus to this earth. I'm so thankful that he has, he has come and he has shown us the way and that he came humbly. He came to, to serve us. Lord, it is, it is mind-blowing that God would leave heaven to serve us. Lord, I pray that, it, it, that you would help us to understand that. Because if we understand that, nothing would hold us back from serving you. Nothing would hold us back from, from loving you if we would understand your great love for us. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from ever exchanging the things in this world that, that are so dear to us, that, that we believe are, are the most important things in life. I pray that you would keep us from exchanging them for all that you would want to give to us through our faith in your son, Jesus. I pray that as we sing and worship tonight, that, that a, a cry would echo from our hearts that is similar to the people who cried out, save us, and that we would say the same thing, save us, Jesus, and not only in prayer, but also in praise to you, saying you're the only one who can save us. There's nothing else, there's no one else we can place our hope upon but you. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendicator.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.